Welcome to the Biochar Talk, a podcast series where I invite experts to speak about biochar, the different ways to make it, its uses and applications, and the significance that it has. I'm your host, Jessica Kovo. I'm a college senior with an interest in sustainability, agriculture, and of course, biochar. Today, I'll be having a conversation with Seton Tarrant. Seton was the one who introduced me to the world of biochar only several months ago when a couple other students and I signed up to help him make biochar. This was at the Oregon Extension, which is a semester-long college program in Southern Oregon where Seton teaches. Seton is an extremely friendly, knowledgeable, and impressive person who has taught me so many things ranging from taking tree core samples to growing mushrooms. As I mentioned, he's a professor at the Oregon Extension. He is also a certified restorative justice practitioner and an associate editor for the Journal of Environmental Studies and Sciences. He has published on the changing role of civics, new conceptions of critical thinking, systems thinking, and transdisciplinary communication and collaboration. He has extensive experience in permaculture and growing organic food. Let's welcome Seton to the Biochar Talk today. So welcome to the Biochar Talk, Seton. I'm really glad to have you on here today. Thanks, Jess. It's great to be here. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah, I'm really happy to have you on since you introduced the whole topic of biochar to me when we were making it at the OE. One of my favorite things about being at the OE is getting to introduce students to some of these cool new ways of working with the earth. So how did, how did you find out about it in the first place? I was in uh, Micanopy, Florida, and uh, there's a small bakehouse and coffee shop there called Mosswood Bakery and Farm Store. It's still there. And the baker there uh, and co-owner is named Joe Pierce. Okay. Um, some people call him Dojo because he is the baker. Uh, they also call him Banana Joe because he grows an amazing amount of varieties of bananas. Mm. And uh, one of the other things he did in the back there was he started to get into biochar. And so it was there, it was around the time he was getting into it also. Um, so I kind of was there when he, he had all the motivation and the interest in putting this together. And I just got to be the lucky one that was there to help out and sort of learn and, and see what it was and how it went there. Um, so the bread oven would get primed at night and we would also often use the fire from priming the bread ovens to uh, throw pizzas. And so sometimes while we were hanging out, making pizzas in the bread oven, we would also run the biochar barrels. Okay. Yep, and it's cool to run them at night because that's when you can really see that bright, clear gas flame coming out of the top of the pipe, you know, and and often at night is when you want heat anyway, so. So how did that work then? Were they wood-fired ovens and then you put the whole biochar system inside there? Or... Yeah, so the, the bread oven and the biochar system were, for the most part, different things. He had built it so that there was a line that ran through the bread oven at the time. And the idea was that the biochar oven or kiln could 
connect into the bread oven and help prime the bread oven while you were making char. I don't think he ever really got that dialed in. Um, the integration of the, of the different components in terms of using the heat productively can be one of the big challenges. But so, um, yeah, he was using the double barrel method, um, kind of like you saw here at the OE. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we down there were mostly burning bamboo scraps um, a lot of dead fallen small oak branches and, mm. um, things like that. Just kind of whatever scrap was around mostly to get the char, to inoculate the char and to use that to really build up the gardens. Um, in the Southeast and in Florida, especially it's a great place for that because this, the soil can be very sandy. Mm. And so anything you can do to give the soil some structure that will hold nutrients and minerals and slow release those over time. You're, you're doing a lot to improve your situation. Awesome. Yeah. So then was the first time that you started to make it yourself? Was that at the OE? Well, we would do small workshop barrels at different skills gatherings for people. And sometimes we'd use the big 55 gallon drums for that. But often too, we would just use small like um, sort of paint buckets, like five gallon metal buckets, two gallon metal buckets, and show how you can do that. Um, cook dinner for like, you know, six or eight people on a biochar burn on a small bucket using just scrap that's lying around. Um, I also, when I was teaching at the University of Florida, I would uh, do those kinds of things for the students there as well. I really so, like that that idea of having such an integrated system using scrap material and then repurposed buckets for that, the toplet updraft system, like the one we were using at the OE. And then on top of that, cooking a meal. That's just very cool to me. Yeah. Yeah. So much of it is it, sustainability is a lot about efficiency and cool, new, you know, safe to fail technology implementation but always there's a link with justice with those things. And so a lot of these ideas come out of really smart people asking themselves, you know, how can we improve the subsistence situation for people in other countries that are cooking their food over fires every day and are dealing with a lot of smoke pollution and are dealing with access to minimal, you know, wood fuel and things like this. And so these are kinds of, connected in that way that the technologies that we're playing with as a way to capture carbon and improve soils are also technologies that can uh, help people just cook their food with less smoke and, um, you know, and maybe with, uh, with less fuel too. Yeah, I think that's a really good point to recognize that we have the privilege to have a burn for more of additional reasons and creating biochar and that it might be a necessity for others in terms of cooking their food. Yeah. And really, even if you, if you were just looking at it from a subsistence level, you know, what you end up with at the end of that is charcoal. So essentially people could cook on it again Mm -hmm. um, if they, if they wanted to. Uh, Also um, charcoal is still a product that a lot of, um, a lot of people sell that make and sell. So if we can get them the simple components they would need 
to produce that charcoal in a way that was more efficient and, um, and did less damage to their immediate environment and gave them a higher quality product that they could sell for more. Um, that's a way to help out those people in the earth too. So I know we used a lot of material that was already at the OE to make the biochar, different scraps that we used to burn, but also I know you had sourced a lot of the older barrels that we used to contain the burn itself. Do you think there are limitations to small-scale biochar? Or like, do you think it's worth it to make biochar at home if you don't have access to a lot of scraps and materials that you could use secondhand? Yeah. Um, well, so if you're, if you come at it from this idea of stacking functions, you know, um, in sustainability too, we say you're never only doing one thing and that can be a kind of depressing reality. If you're thinking about all the negative consequences of driving the, to the store to get milk or something like this, but that can also be an uplifting sort of motivational reality when you realize we can be doing multiple good things with any one thing we're doing. Mm. So in biochar is no different. So, you know, if you need materials, that's a reason to look into your community and look into the waste streams in your community. If that's not something you've already done, well, then you're, you've already won. Even if you never successfully make biochar, mm -hmm. if it gets you to connect with your community and start to identify the waste streams in your community, and ways to turn that waste into food, it's already a win right there. Um, definitely, especially as a small scale sort of like hobbyist and just experimenter and tinkerer, which I think so many great things come out of that, especially education and outreach. Um, I don't think, I think it's really important to get away from the mentality that you need to buy all this stuff that you need to go to some store and buy all these things. And that's how you're gonna solve stuff. Um, you know, there's stuff lying around all over the place in this country. Um, and small scale biochar chambers are gonna burn out. You're gonna burn that metal fin. And eventually they're not gonna be good for that anymore. So it's kind of like one stage in the life cycle of that metal. Um, so it wouldn't make sense to buy brand new barrels for that, for that kind of a reason either. Um, the fuel for making the biochar is a little bit more interesting to question, you know, biofuels in general, it's an interesting question. Like how far do you have to transport the fuel to where you're going to make it into mm -hmm. this new thing, this new so sort of type of fuel or whatever. Um, and if that's a very far distance, it's probably not a good idea. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, if you had to ship corn halfway across the country to turn it into biodiesel, maybe that doesn't make very much sense in the long run um, mm -hmm. because of the, the full cost accounting of making that fuel. So just like starting out with something like this is going to give you the chance to ask yourself the question, okay, what are the waste streams in my community? Who are the people I can connect with? It's also going to give you the chance to ask yourself, okay, what are the, the sort of bio wastes? What are the woody matter 
wastes in my community that I can access and connect with. Um, and so that would be the thing to do is to look around and you know what's around you. Um, a cool thing happening right now up here, we're in a very fire prone area. And this time of year before it gets too dry is when people do a lot of uh, fuels reduction and fire prevention work on their properties. And one of the things they do is called ladder trimming. It's where they cut the lower branches on the trees around their properties so fire won't climb. Um, so Janine Moy, who runs Vesper Sparrow Preserve, has put out this call and has organized a bunch of volunteers. What they are doing is basically rebuilding and restoring wetland ecosystems by raising the water table in areas that have been sort of trenched and dug out um, mm -hmm. for the creation of pasture lands some 40 and 50 years ago. So they're trying to return that to its, its meadow state and its wetland state. And they're doing that because to slow down the water, they need to slow down the water to make that happen. So mm -hmm. what they want to do is basically act like beavers. The beavers aren't there. They, we got rid of too many of the beavers. We want the beavers to come back. But in the meantime, we have to act like the beavers. So they basically want to build these huge piles of sticks and, and wood and all these creeks to slow the water down. And so they, she's put out this call and has all these volunteers. And they said, hey, we will come to your property. We will do the ladder trimming for you and we'll take it all with us. And so that's the kind of example, right? Of where, look, okay, I need wood. What do I do? How yeah. can I do that, but also like benefit my community and also achieve some of the other sort of ecological goals we have in this place, you know? And she's gonna raise awareness to her issue Every person, she, who knows which neighbors she's going to come and help them out and then come the summer, all of a sudden those neighbors are showing up at her place to help with a butterfly count or something yeah. like this. So figuring out how to do that, you know, how can you help someone, help one environment, end up with some wood that you can then turn into biochar. That's, that's the creative, fun, connecting, sort of networking, nonlinear challenge of, you know, being a sustainableista. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's such an awesome, awesome example of combining so many different benefits into one, one action there. Mm -hmm. So I know you mentioned the main use that you've used the biochar you've made is in the garden. What steps do you make um, to inoculate that biochar? I know that's something you had mentioned um, when we were making biochar. So uh, you wanna think about that carbon, the biochar is a carbon. If you made good biochar, then it's a really high quality carbon. And it, on the microscopic level, it looks like a sponge. It has mm -hmm. all these little holes in it all over the place, which means it has a ton of surface area. That surface area is what contributes to its ability to retain and hold so much over so many years and be so stable as carbon. Almost, um, it's just kind of a non-obvious move, but so the first thing you do is you actually crush it. You want it to be as small as possible, almost like a powder, because that's gonna expose the most surface area. Mm. Um, and then you take that and uh, you can go a couple different ways. Um, 
you could inoculate it with an aerobic tea uh, that could include compost and um, some soil that you already know is really alive and healthy and has a really positive sort of um, microbiology already in it. And you could put the char in that tea and pump that tea and let it kind of soak up into the charcoal. Um, you know, we are, you're keeping minerals and nutrients in the char, but you're also making homes for all these tiny little critters that we can't see that are probably the real workhorses of our whole food system. Um, so having a nice live tea like that is one way to do it. Another way to do it is you could do an anaerobic tea and then you're not pumping it. And um, one product that you can use to do that EM, which you can buy uh, at different stores if you look around. Yeah, um, is that the efficient microbes, is the EM? Yeah, efficient microbes, effective microbes, they kind of sit different ways, different times. But yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's just, it's like a, it's kind of like um, Bakashi, which is another, it was a Japanese um, soil culture that oh, okay. they would keep on grain and then use the grain to spread it into their soil. But okay. in this case, it's just a liquid. Um, usually it's fed a little bit of molasses or something like that. And once you get it going, you can just kind of use it and keep feeding it with a little bit of molasses and kind of keep your, your colony of that stuff alive and spreading it all into your garden and getting it everywhere into your garden. Um, and so you can soak the biochar in that as well and then put, then bury the char into the soil, just mix it in. You know, there's different ways you can do it. Um, I found it to be really effective to just add it in at the very beginning stage. So the very beginning stage is when I'm seeding on seeding mats for the most part. So in those early mixes, starting in those early mixes all the way up. So basically every plant we move into the garden already has biochar in its roots. Oh, okay. And so, if you yeah. get tons, you could, you could dig trenches and you could bury tons of it in there too. Okay. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that idea of mixing it into the soil that you start the plants on. And then you have that benefit without having to fill your whole garden space with the, the biochar. Yeah, and you're giving those plants the chance to already establish you know, the relationship with that microbiology. It's the same thing with the mycology. You know, If you're gonna use fungal amendments, you might as well just start them early on and then let them spread. Um, and eventually, you know, if you've been in a place long enough um, all that stuff's just there in your system moving around, which is great. It's like a healthy digestive system on a human being. It kind of works and we kind of take it for granted. Um, but in a world with a lot of sort of environmental hazards and disturbances, we're often coming from a place of restoration and rehabilitation. And so it, it is all about how do I supplement this? How do I add it in? How do I get more of it going? Yeah. That's a good point, especially using biochar in a lot of lands that need help in restoration or in even absorbing toxic chemicals out of its nearby surroundings is something that I've researched that biochar can do as well. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and then fed to the right mushroom could break down a lot of those toxins, mm. uh, which, is pretty, which is pretty cool too and uh, turn them benign, 
you know, Paul Stamets has done some amazing experiments with that, with how fungi can literally um, undo the sort of the harm of some of these, these things that are in our soils. Um, yeah, I've always, you know, having come from Appalachia, I always have thought about how mountaintop removal, if you've seen any of the scars of mountaintop removal, the soil's completely gone and it's just rock. Mm -hmm. um, and there would be this kind of cool irony if, you know, char, not coal, but it's kind of like coal, you know, carbon, basically the same thing that motivated these people to basically blow these mountains up. If we could somehow find a way that that same thing becomes the thing that starts to heal uh, these mountains. And so I think that would be such a cool initiative is if biochar and soil building in those mountains to try and recover of course and just stop it i mean it should just be stopped it should never happen but to try and undo what has already been done in that way that would be pretty neat yeah that's very meaningful that connection so as you've been kind of experimenting with making biochar um what would you say some of the trials you've had have been or just figuring out what works for the system you have and any different intricacies you've noticed in making it? Um, you need wood that is really dry. So uh, that's not too hard around here. As long as you put it out at the right time of year, you know, it can be very, very dry here. So you can get nice dry stuff. Um, but that could be a challenge in some other climates. Um, you can't, it's hard to get really high quality char from wood that's really wet. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one thing. The other thing is, um, you know, just experimenting with different materials. I think you were here when we were trying to use the shavings from the planer. Yeah. And, you know, we just found that it too, it was too, it compacted too much in the chamber and just inhibited airflow in the outer chamber. And, um, and inhibited, it, be, it became like an insulator in the inner chamber. So the high heat that we needed to get the pyrolysis going wouldn't get mm. to parts of the chamber and only parts of the chamber would actually char. And so that's kind of a bummer is like, okay, so that can't be used for that, you know, but then that just means, okay, that's bedding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's animal bedding. That's not char material. Mm -hmm. Um, but so that's the, from the fuel side, that's been one figuring out what are the best fuels around here to use. Um, another is, you know, how best to capture the heat. Um, for me, that's been important. You can just make biochar to make the char to build the soil, but you got all this heat you're producing. And so I always try and use the heat. Um, you know, we were experimenting when you were here with, uh, using it to heat water, to pasteurize straw, waste straw, to grow oyster mushrooms. Mm -hmm. That's a great use. Um, but I would love to figure out how to channel it into a larger oven and use it to, uh, to bake stuff, you know, over more time. Um, so, Again, it's one of those things where if I just decided I was going to go to the store and just start buying stuff, I mean, I could probably build something for $500 or something and, and yeah. make it do that. But uh, instead, it's just a matter of being creative and 
looking around, seeing what comes up and <laughs> little by little putting it together. But I think that would be cool as if it could be an oven at the same time as it was also making the, the char. Um, that'd be kind of a long-term goal for me, but that is a challenge is how to, it's a lot of high heat for not a lot of time. Mm. And so basically you're asking yourself, where can you put that like a battery, you know? So water is a battery. Stone is a battery. Mm -hmm. Um, Those are places where that heat can go. Um, Thinking that way, you know, if it was really an integrated system, I'd only make biochar on the coldest days of the year and it would heat hot water that got pumped through lines that ran under my hoop house. Oh yeah. And just radiant heated my hoop house on those really cold nights to keep those temperatures up Mm. Um, and also made biochar like that. That'd be, you know, it can easily be a water boiler. And that's one of the ways it's used on larger farm operations that have set it up. Um, Okay. Yeah. See, I like, I like that creativity on the home or a smaller scale, like the OE where you could really customize what you want the different resultants of that pyrolysis to go towards because I have seen some very awesome systems that can make biochar and capture the heat and the biofuel and everything and I think that's very valid and very important but I think there is something special to be able to route the heat or the gas to a specific um, need in your own life or community there yeah yeah i think place and context are are great sources of information and inspiration for design Mm -hmm. do you have any other fun facts about your times and experiences with biochar or any other insights that you think would be helpful um yeah i mean i guess i would say one of the major ironies of all of this is uh, this, the same technology that's pulling people away from the earth in part, you know, uh, computerization and internet and online information um, is, this is also the source of how all of us are learning how to do these things, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> um, and so it's really great. So I think, I think biochar is a great example of the way someone, and it it wasn't me, I wasn't the first one in my community to say, I'm going to start learning about biochar on YouTube. It was somebody else. But then I learned from them. So it's kind of like the new book, you know, used to be you'd read about it in a book, and then maybe you tried it. Um, So I, I just would tell anyone that listened to this, that they should they should keep that in mind that every time you're going to Netflix or you're going somewhere else to just kind of escape, you could also be learning some cool thing that you might actually want to try in your community, you know, and still be entertained. It's still entertaining. Mm-hmm. You're still <laughs> relaxing. You're still being entertained, but you're actually like, you're developing inspiration for it. You know, it make you more excited about the next day. There's something, Oh, I'm going to try that. I'm going to do this. So Um, I think that will be as if your generation, Jess, more than any other generation previously is able to make that shift in the way that they, uh, for lack of a better word, consume information Mm -hmm. or orient themselves to information. 
then I think you're just going to see so much, so many more creative ways that people are, you know, addressing the issues and challenges of your time and, and being amazing, creative, create artists. So, um, it was no different for me and for, you know, when we first started doing this stuff, like, uh, almost 25 years ago now, I guess it is about 25 years. It's the same thing. I mean, we were just trying it out because we thought it would be fun to try it out. So hopefully everyone will do that um, <laughs> even more. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. I like that call to using the same technology we might turn to, to just relax, but just rerouting that and all of the abundance that can come from just looking into something instead. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Seton. It's been awesome to hear your insights and your experiences. So I'm really glad that you were able to join me today. It's my pleasure anytime.